We are going to commence our study from the book of Exodus. From the book of Exodus, there are 40 chapters in this book, and it's going to stretch us until mid-October, and each fourth week of the month, we'll do apologetic. So uh, it's, a, it's a many chapters in there, 40 chapters, and so what we want to do is to encourage you to not just read through the book of Exodus, but uh, just know that uh, which chapter is going to be expound on the Sunday and read in advance because there are certain Sundays that we are going to cover a few chapters rather than uh, just a small little text. It will take us many, many weeks if we go through that. So some, some weeks we are going to preach a big chunk, and so we encourage you to uh, read in advance. But today we are going to look at Exodus chapter 1. It's good to study through one book, and it is our desire to cover one book every year, and we try to alternate between New Testament and Old Testament. And last year, we did the book of New Testament on the book of James, and so this year, we want to look at the book of Exodus from the Old Testament. And I think one of the great things about studying through a book is that it forces us as pastors to confront difficult texts in the Bible so that we don't pick and choose uh, certain texts and, and, and just move over texts that are difficult to explain. And so when we study book, we are confronted with texts that we have to go through it. And so the whole counsel of God is uh, uh, being delivered and preached. And of course, pastors, we tend to have our hobby horse as well. Some of us are into evangelism or discipleship or mission or social justice and all that. And, and studying a book forces us to cover all aspects and the whole counsel of God is being preached in that sense. Exodus. Uh, Francis Schaeffer, many years ago, wrote a book entitled, God is there and He is not silent. God is there and He is not silent. I, I have no doubt that God is always there. God is always in the midst of everything that we may be going through in our lives. Uh, I do believe that. But it's Sometimes from certain perspective, from our perspective, we seem to think that he is not there and he is silent. Like you read from the book of Psalms, for example, there were many psalmists who expressed that, where are you, Lord? Why, why are you not here with us? And sometimes in our own lives, we tend to also think that God is not there and God is silent. And the period of time depicted in, in, in the first chapter of Exodus is one of those times, a time when all, from all appearances, God was silent. Nevertheless, God was there. We shall learn to see His hand in those silent times as we study this first chapter of Exodus more carefully. Well, Exodus, as we probably already know about it, it means the way out or exit it is the uh, Greek translation from the Hebrew word. The book of Exodus is one of the most fascinating and important books of the Old Testament. It is a dramatic account of Israel's exodus from Egypt under the human leadership of Moses and divine leadership of God. 
it has been said that it's approximately about 2 million uh, people exit from Exodus, uh, recorded in Exodus 12, although it only mentions 600,000, uh, but those are abled men, it include women and children, it probably amounts to about 2 million people ex exit from Egypt to Sinai. And so in this Exodus, Israel make a geographical pilgrimage from Egypt to Sinai, and also a social pilgrimage from slavery to freedom, and as well as a spiritual pilgrimage from being the sons of Israel, with the sons of Jacob, to become the covenant people of God. And as we go through the book of Exodus, you realize that there are two themes that keep coming and appear, that tie together. And the first theme is redemption, portrayed by the Passover. And the second theme is deliverance, portrayed by Exodus from Egypt. And so out of the 40 chapters, we can divide this book into three sections. One is Israel in Egypt. It depicts Israel in Egypt from chapter 1 to chapter 12, verse 36. And that is telling us about what happened when Israel were in Egypt. And then Israel journey to Sinai. And from chapter 12, verse 37 onwards, stretch all the way to the end of chapter 18, it depicts Israel's journey from Egypt to Sinai. And the last section, which covered the last 21 chapters, and that is chapter 19, all the way to the end of the book, chapter 40, is depicting what happened when Israel were in Sinai. So Israel in Egypt, Israel journey through Sinai, and Israel at Sinai. And so today we begin chapter 1, and the next couple of weeks will be about Israel in Egypt, what happened there. So let me just uh, help you to unpack this text in chapter 1 with three points, and each point I'd like to give an application as well. Um, so let me begin now. Uh, the first point I want to give to you is from verses 1 to 7. I would entitle this, The Past and the Present. There's a contrast here. My three points is a three of contrasts in a sense. So the past and the present. Verse 1 begins by saying, These are the names of the sons of Israel. But interestingly, in, the book, uh, uh, in, in Hebrew's language, it simply begins with the word end. A-N-D, and. It is almost like telling us that Genesis and Exodus is actually flow. It is part of the story. It is not another book in a sense. It, is, it flows from Genesis, as we know. Uh, book of Genesis, the story began creation, and after that, God selected Abraham and wanted Abraham and promised Abraham that he will have many, many descendants and he's going to give him a land, people, and they're going to use the people of Israel to be a blessing to the entire world. And that is what we call covenantal promise that God made to Abraham. And the purpose is that the Israel as a nation will represent God to the world. It was meant for that. God selected Abraham and make, gave him the, this promise. And as we all know the story, and eventually it grew, uh, Isaac, Jacob, 
and then famine struck. Joseph was sold to uh, uh, Egypt, and then they eventually went to Egypt. And here it begins to tell us the names of all these people uh, who went to Egypt. So let me just read to you. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 70 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. So they, when they went to Egypt, there were only 70 of them. And then verse 6 says, Now Joseph and all his brothers and all their generation died. Many generations down. But the Israelites, the but there is very important, isn't it? I remember Jim Charles always said that whenever there's a but, that means everything before means nothing. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful. They multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and they became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So many generations have passed, 70 has multiplied. They were in Egypt for 400 years. Some texts say 430 years. Uh, they are, it's quite easy to, uh, to reconcile the discrepancy, but I'm just going to stick to 400 years as promised in uh, Genesis chapter 15 when uh, God said to Abraham that uh, they are going to be enslaved for 400 years. Chapter 15, verse 13 to 14 in Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would be enslaved in a foreign land for 400 years. They know something is coming. 400 years they'll be enslaved. And true enough, when the times come, God will begin to raise up someone to lead this group of people to go into the promise. So at this point of time, the first covenantal promise that God made to Abraham is coming to fruition. And that is, God promised them people. And they have reached a sizable people. And the next step that God is going to do to fulfill His covenantal promise to Abraham is to give them a land of their own. And that is when Joseph, uh, He raised Moses, come along and lead the people out into the promised land. And then the third promise is going to move on from there. And so, uh, verse 7 is critical. Verse 7 is important because verse 7 is not isolated text from other parts of Scripture. It is flow from what the promise that God initially made right from the start. Imagine... Uh, Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, while Adam lived in the Garden of Eden, God said to him, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And then after the flood in Genesis chapter 9, God again said to Noah, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And it is the language that is taken up and transformed into a promise in the covenant God made to Abraham. 
In Genesis 22, verse 17 again, saying, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and the sand on the seashore. Again, promising him that God is going to multiply their people. And then, repeated again to Abraham's son, Isaac, and Isaac's sons, Jacob, in Genesis 26, verse 4, and Genesis 35, verse 11, Again, telling them, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you. So the, so the mandate, so the original mandate of creation taken up in the special covenant promise between God and Abraham, Isaac and Jacob is what stands behind the language of Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. In other words, God is keeping His promises. Don't lose sight of that. God is keeping His promises. He make a promise and who He will bring it to pass. So the application for the first point, the past and the present, is that God is in charge of history. You are not a number, as uh, I think it was a RSCV kind of advertisement that say you are not a number, you are a member. You know, uh, I think that is a very good point in, in reminding us that you are not just a number of God's creation. Your life matters. God is in charge of history. God's purpose never fails. Taking a long-term perspective to know that even in this current situation and crisis, whatever that we are facing, it is very helpful for us to be reminded that God is working His purposes out as year succeeds to year. God is working out His purposes year in and year out that amidst the darkness and the hostility and the sin of a fallen world, the promise and the mandate of God advances nonetheless. That our small stories are part of a larger drama in which the design of God, the agenda of God is being accomplished no matter how things may appear to us. So you are a member, you are part of it. Your little story, it is part of a divine larger drama that God is using. As someone say, if God is the author of life, then there must be a script. Where there is a script, there must be a story. It is not that the world is a stage and we can pick and choose different scripts. The individual subplot must gain its direction from the larger story of God's purpose for our lives. So you are an, a unique time in history. Each one of us, it is playing out God's purposes in advancing God's purposes. As we often hear people say, history is his story. Or somebody say history is actually a compilation of innumerable biographies. Each one of us intricately a part of God's design plan to bring about His ultimate will on earth. 
Our story is locked into history, one person at a time. He is Lord of history. He is Lord of time. We are not insignificant. We are not a number. Our life matters. The God of the past has blotted out your sin, Charles Spurgeon said. The God of the past has blotted out all your sins, and the God of the present makes all things work for your good, and the God of the future will never leave you nor forsake you, Charles Spurgeon. Or St. Augustine will say, trust the past to God's mercy, the present to God's love, and the future to His providence. God can bring peace to your past, purpose to your present, and hope to your future. He is the God of history, and it is connected. Whatever that happened in Genesis, now we see in verse 7, it is connected. God is bringing His purpose to pass. Let me plow on. Second point I want to give you is the contrast, not just only the past and the present, but new king and new policies. There's a new king that came up, a new pharaoh that came up now, and new policies came into place from verses 8 to 14. And look at verse 8. And then a new king. A new king. Uh, NIV said, to whom Joseph meant nothing. Some version says, uh, which Pharaoh uh, do not know of uh, Joseph at all, uh, which is very, very unlikely, isn't it? I think NIV probably put it right in the sense that then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. There are a lot of studies about this particular new pharaoh. Why is it that he has no regard for Joseph in that sense who was the uh, prime minister in Egypt? Uh, we understand from my daily research that I, 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 I did is that they are talking about different dynasty in Egypt at the time. And probably in the time when Joseph was a prime minister, the pharaoh was from a a dynasty called Hissos, 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 uh, H-S-K-S-O-S, or some H-Y-K-S-O-S, Hissos, H-Y-K-S-O-S, Hissos, and, 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 and they were not Egyptian in a sense, and therefore uh, Joseph, and, and they're from semantic background, very similar to Joseph, and therefore he was promoted, but now, at this point of time in Exodus chapter 1, it was a new pharaoh from the Egyptian background, the Egyptian, from the Egyptian. And as a result, uh, they, they, they were very concerned, this particular new pharaoh were very concerned that the, the, the Israelites grown so large, he might join forces back with the Hyssos dynasty and come and, and overthrow them again, as you can see from the language as we read, uh, that might be the, the, the hint there as well. So then a new king came up to whom Joseph meant nothing at all, uh, came to power in Egypt. And then he said, look, he said to his people, verse 9, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, the Hyksos, to fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave master over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built 
Python and Ramses and store cities for Pharaoh. But, again, there's the word but there. Isn't it amazing? There's always a but. In each parallel, there's a but. It mentioned all these things, but, because God is in charge. God is the God of history. He's not going to allow all this kind of thing to upset His plan. No one can thwart His plan. But, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. So the Egyptians came to drag the Israelites and they worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. Did you notice that there is a parallel between Exodus and Genesis? In both, people are blessed and doing well and then an evil figure comes to destroy them, isn't it? In Genesis, it is the snake, the serpent. Garden of Eden, everything turned around, and then Satan, the serpent, came. And in Exodus, it's Pharaoh who embodies evil. He hates the Israelites. He's hostile towards them. He's concerned that they might join the Hisok's dynasty as they grew and come and overthrow him. So to deal with them, he sets them to work making mortar and brick. And this parallels the curse in Genesis when God cursed all people with death. What is death symbolized by? Dirt, dust, mud, mortar. And so Pharaoh is driving the people of God into the dirt, into mud, into death. So new king, new policies. And the application of this section is that blessing and sufferings are not mutually exclusive. Blessing and suffering are not mutually exclusive. Blessing and suffering always exist together. Always exist together. Blessing and expansion is always in the midst of suffering and hostility. Right throughout history, Christianity grew always, expansion is always through suffering. Uh, Oscar Wilde, uh, the Irish playwright, used to say there are only two tragedies in life. Uh, one is not getting what one wants, one is not getting what you want, and the other is actually getting it. Getting it and don't get it can be a tragedy. Because the thing that you get, it, if you don't manage it well, it can become a tragedy. And so, blessing and suffering always goes hand in hand. I know it is a terrible picture, but actually it contains an important biblical principle for the people of God in every age. Along with the experience of blessing, always comes an experience of suffering. God was blessing His covenant people by multiplying them. He was keeping His promises. He was doing what He said He would do. And yet, with that blessing, there came a reaction. There is hostility, animosity, and insecurity, and oppression. It is a very hard lesson to learn, but it is a vital one if we are to navigate life's challenges successfully as Christians. The blessings of God does not mean the absence of suffering. I don't know why we tend to interpret that when you're suffering, is not blessing. Sometimes, God, in His sovereignty, allows certain suffering to happen because He wants to bless us. He wants to bless us. 
In fact, as Jesus put in John 16, in this world you have trouble. And uh, how important it is to understand that. I, I'm, I'm concerned as a pastor because uh, the blessing side of the thing has completely blown out of proportion and suffering has been seen as deemed something is wrong. But I read, my own, I read the scripture right throughout New Testament and all that. Man, people of God always suffer. Always suffer. In the midst of blessing, they're able to transcend suffering into blessing. It is important to understand that how much confusion and sadness we might be spared if we saw that our sufferings are not the opposite of God's blessings. That His favour towards us in Christ has not been withdrawn because for a season we have been submerged beneath trials. I wrote in the, uh, this month's uh, bulletin on the first page, uh, Pastor's Perspective, about the story of Richard Rumbrand, the Romanian preacher, the founder of, uh, what is the, um, ah, just slip off my mind. Uh, the Romanian preacher spent 14 years in the communist prison, a voice of the martyr, that's right, founder of Voice of the Martyr. Uh, spent 14 years in a communist prison, three of them in solitary confinement. Yet he looked back on his vicious cocktail of evil, injustice and suffering with no regrets, having discovered that throughout it, through, throughout, through it all, his faith had flourished. And this is what he says. He said, The communists believe that happiness comes from material satisfaction, but alone in my cell, cold, hungry and in wrecks, I dance for joy every night. Sometimes I was so filled with joy that I felt I would burst if I did not give it expression. Isn't it amazing? Blessing in the midst of suffering. Through the suffering, he was drawn so close to God. You know, we live in a skin-deep world. Our culture glorifies external, but character and substance are shaped in the crucible of adversity. Show me someone who lives a carefree life with no problems or trials or dark nights of the soul and I'll show you a shallow person. Talk to someone who's been through suffering. Talk to some people who have been through tragedy in their lives. You listen to them. Because it is real words of nugget. People who suffer from cancer before, people survive death, you know, uh, been through hardship in life. These people give you go nut. Verse 12 said, The more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread. The more. Even in the story, we were just doing the uh, KYB uh, in uh, Acts chapter 7, 8, and 9. And uh, we remember Stephen was stoned to death. And after Stephen was stoned to death, the believers scattered, scattered across everywhere, and, uh, and through persecution, they spread. And as a result of persecution, they spread, they begin to fulfill Acts chapter 1, verse 8, bringing the gospel from Judea, Samaria, and to the utmost parts of the earth. So through persecution, through suffering, they scattered, and as a result of persecution and suffering, they spread the message around. It looks like a catastrophe of the highest order for the cause of Christ and the spread of the gospel. And yet it turns out that the church is scattered precisely according to the program outlined by Christ in His great commission and Acts chapter 1 verse 8. 
Everywhere the believers went, they shared the good news about Jesus and the gospel spread and advanced. And eventually, Saul of Tarsus, who ravaged the church, we are told, begins to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Blessings, sufferings, they are not mutually exclusive. Suffering can be blessings from God. Can be. Can be. Because God is in the business of using everything. And the Bible talks about trials. Pastor Bruce read to us, trials that mold us and shape us. And we've got to take care of our inner life, not just only our external inner life. And inner life can only be mold and shaped through sometimes suffering, through difficulties of life. And so for that, we need to understand that suffering and blessing is always together. Uh, I think Philip Yancey, in one of his books, he wrote the story about uh, Augustine, St. Augustine. And he says this, for 15 years, Augustine's mother, Monica, prayed for her son. As you, if you know a little bit about uh, Augustine, he indulged in his, in his senses and investigated exotic philosophies. He was living a real complete life of sin. And when Augustine finally converted, these were the very experiences that gave depth and richness to his writing, allowing him to set the course of Christian thought for centuries. And it's been said that once Monica, his mother, prayed all night that God would stop her son from going to wicked Rome. But he tricked her and he sailed away. But interestingly, it was on that trip, in fact, that Augustine became a Christian. So reflecting later, Augustine said that God denied his mother once in order to grant her what she had prayed for always. Always. Blessing and sufferings are not mutually exclusive. And we must remember that the gospel advanced in hostile conditions. The church grew. The blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church, as we often say. The blood of the martyr is the seat of the church. New king, new policies, blessing, suffering, they are not mutually exclusive. Through suffering, God is using wonderful things to bless uh, people around us. My third point is Pharaoh and the midwives. Verse 15 to 22. Pharaoh and the midwives. Verse 15. As uh, we finish off by saying that it grew, the, the harder they tried, the harder Pharaoh tried to stop them from multiplying and growing stronger, it is, it is actually worked not to his benefit. It begins to grow even larger. And now come another scene between Pharaoh and midwives. Beautiful story, this part. Verse 15 said, The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, now he devised another strategy, whose names were Shiprath and Puah, Interestingly, nobody knows the name of the Pharaoh, who is the most powerful man on earth. And these two seemingly insignificant midwives, the names were recorded now. A few thousand years later, we still know who they were. And shipwreck actually means beauty. And pua means splendor. What a beautiful name, beauty and splendor. 
And this is the, the, the king said to these two midwives, verse 16, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. If it is a girl, let her live. Very simple, because they want to kill off one generation. Kill off the boy, and then the, the girls, they just married the local Egyptian. And then and in one generation, all will be gone. And that will fulfill his, his wish. Verse 17, midwives, however, feared God. Isn't that beautiful? And they did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. And in verse 18, then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives. And please note that the two, two of them are actually like, like high in rank because there must be thousands, hundreds of uh, midwives under their charge in the sense. They are charge nurse, maybe like Estuary, you know, charge nurse. Uh, the midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys leave. And then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys leave? And verse 19, the midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. Now, some say that they are lying, uh, but it may not necessarily be the case. It may be, it may be just stating the fact. It may be true. Uh, it's been said that people who work a uh, labor job, uh, they give up easier. I don't know. Uh, there is a possibility that that is the case. Uh, so whether they are lying or they are just stating facts, we are not sure. The, the point of the matter is that they, they say that they let the boys live. And as a result, in verse 20, God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. You see, you see Pharaoh tried to thwart God's plan and see what happened? Even through that, the people increased and became even more numerous. That is in verse 20. And look at verse 21, another humor. And because the midwives feared God, He gave them families of their own. God used them to contribute into the addition of the number that God wants them. Isn't it amazing? The midwives feared God. Twice it was mentioned that the midwives feared God. Verse 17 and verse 21. Feared God. God is their master, not Pharaoh. God is their master. Now, it is a brutal, bloody strategy designed to preserve the adult male. Uh, Hebrew, they were killed, they were slaughtered, and these two lowly Hebrew midwives, what heroines they are. They feared God and they preserved the lives of the children. Because the midwives who are to be the executioners of the Hebrew boys to stop the expansion and growth of the people of God, because they feared God, God gave them families so that they contribute 
to the expansion and growth of the people of God. Very straightforward. The application is you should always obey God. We should always obey God rather than man. Someone said that if you, if you want to, uh, if you please God, it doesn't matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you please. Obey God rather than man. If there are laws of the society that you are to obey, but if it's contradict to the higher moral law of the scripture, we should have the courage to follow the higher moral law of God's word rather than the society. And the application is simple. Obey God rather than men. And, and, and as I close, I remember the story of Daniel, isn't it? The story of Daniel is a classic example like the, the midwives. They feared God, they obeyed God, and not the king. In chapter 3 of Daniel, verse 16 to 18, I want to read to you. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. And even in Acts as well, Peter and, and, and John uh, chapter 3, Daniel chapter 3, verse 16 says, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king. Because they say why are, they were charging them to ask them to bow down uh, to the king. Uh, why are you not bowing down to the king? And so they asked Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and they replied to the king, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. Can you imagine say that to a king? And in verse 17, If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it. And He will deliver us from your majesty's hand. And in verse 18, He said, But even if He does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of God you have set up. Isn't it amazing? This is really what I call genuine faith. Genuine faith. A faith that says, well, I'm not going to do. I believe that God will deliver me. But even if God didn't deliver me, I will not. I'd rather be burned to death than to bow down and worship you. Isn't it amazing? This is called genuine faith. No bargaining with God in a sense. Doesn't matter how it ends we are going to stand on our ground. Someone said, when a servant of God can do nothing else, he can at least die like a Christian. When a servant of God can do nothing else, he can at least die like a Christian. Genuine faith. Even uh, in the book of Acts, same thing. Uh, when Peter and James, uh, John was asked to keep quiet, they didn't. They said, no, I'm going to obey God and not you. And so the simple application from the third point of uh, Pharaoh and midwives is that we should always obey God and not men. And of course, in verse 22, it says that Pharaoh then moved on to another plan. Another plan. Third one, third plan. He gave his order to all his people. Every boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile but let every girl live. Again, and then who knows, next week, we're going to pick up again. Pastor Ken, we're going to pick up again. It is true that again, the deliverer, Moses, is going to come and deliver the people out of Egypt. Let me finish with this. In church history, there was a guy called 
Polycarp. Polycarp, he was an old man, about 86 years old, and he was probably the last surviving person to have known an apostle, around about 164 uh, AD during the time. So he was the last surviving person to have known an apostle. Uh, he, has been a apost- he has been a disciple to, to John, the apostle John, uh, and that, is, that was why during the, the time he was greatly revered as a teacher and church leader. But it was under, during persecution time, and let me just read to you of this short account. The police and the horsemen came with the young men at supper time on the Friday with their usual weapons, as if coming out against a robber to, to take Polycarp. That evening, they found him lying down in the upper room of a cottage. He could have escaped, but he refused, saying, God's will be done. I remember Osbert, just a side, I remember Osbert Chamber, the devotional author, used to say that uh, uh, if, if suffering can achieve God's will, then let me suffer. That's what Oswald Chambers said. And that evening, they came. He can escape, but he refused. He said, God's will be done. And when he heard that they had come, he went down and he spoke with them. They were amazed at his age and steadfastness. And some of them said, why did, why did we go to so much trouble to capture the man like this? Immediately, he called for food and drink for them. And he asked for an hour to pray uninterrupted. They agreed. And he stood and prayed, so full of the grace of God that he could not stop for two hours. The men were astounded, and many of them regretted coming to arrest such a godly and venerable an old man. When he finished praying, they put him on a donkey, and they took him into the city. As Polycarp was being taken into the arena, a voice came to him from heaven, Be strong, Polycarp, and play the man. No one saw who had spoken, but our brothers who were there heard the voice. When the crowd heard that Polycarp had been captured, there was an uproar. The proconsul asked him whether he was Polycarp. When hearing that he was, he tried to persuade him to apostatize, saying, Have respect for your old age. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent and say, Down with the eighties. And Polycarp looked grimly at the wicked hidden multitude in the stadium and gesturing towards them he said down with the atheists swear urge the broken south reproach Christ and I will set you free and this is what Polycarp said he said for 86 years I have served him and he has done me no wrong how can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? For 86 years, He has do me no harm, do me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my King and my Savior? It reminds me of Job that says in chapter 13, verse 15, Though He slay me, yet I will follow Him. May we uh, draw this lesson from the midwives of obeying God and not men. May we pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for 
the wonderful, rich story in the book of Exodus. We thank you that you are the God of history. You are in charge. Uh, whatever you said of always will always come to fruition. As we can see, this story begin to unpack. You said from the start, they will be held for 400 years captivity before they will be released. And down to the point, you raise up Moses to deliver them. And as we see later on, when the Jewish people in exile, you say 70 years. And then you said also that one day a Messiah will come in the future to deliver us, and he came. And now you say that this Messiah will return someday, and we are in that part of the in-between time. And as we look back of your book, your holy word, you fulfill every promise that you make. It comes to pass and come to fruition. And we know that while in, we are in this time, nearing the final return of Jesus, and you promise that you will return, and we know you will. So thank you that you are in charge. Thank you that you are in control. Thank you that you are sovereign. We need not live in fear. We can be uh, certain and walk with you faithfully, obey you, and never man, and stand up for our faith in this very uh, difficult time, difficult climate in this part of the world. Thank you, Lord. We bless you. We love you. Stir our hearts to love Jesus more and more and live for him in this time where the world is pretty dark. And may we shine for you that we'll be like a salt and light shining brightly for Jesus Christ. And may the amazing grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, His unconditional and unfailing love of God and the empowering fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all now and forevermore. Amen.